This morning I'm going to offer some reflections on the practice of uh, what is this by going over the story that Martine introduced yesterday, but I'll expand it uh, in a little bit more detail. And this is the story of a young monk called Hui Zhang, who goes to South China and meets the sixth patriarch, Huineng, and as a result um, occurs an exchange that contains this suggestion that we ask, what is this? As Martin said yesterday, this is this whole story is called a kungan, a koan. The word kungan actually is a Chinese legal term. Um, it has to do with a a legal case. A, a kungan is a is a case in law that a judge will refer to in making a judgment about a particular case that's happening now. So, as you sometimes hear when reports are made about um, uh, you know, some famous case in law, that the judge will say, and following the example of Smith versus Jones we likewise will draw the book. Kungans are like that. They are case stories of events that took place in the past, in this case, 8th century China. But their relevance is not purely historical. It has to do with their ability to serve as an indicator or as a pointer to the current case. And the current case is you in this room, or me in this room. That's the current case. That's what we're trying to resolve to follow this legal argument. Um, the current case to be resolved is the case of your own life now. That's where this practice, or all koan practice, is fundamentally located. And as a way to give us some direction or orientation to this current case, it's been found helpful in the Zen tradition to go back to these earlier cases. Again, this seems to be a peculiarly Chinese way of... of um, of approaching this kind of practice. You don't find uh, a similar approach used in India or Indian-influenced cultures at all. So the historical case that gives us an orientation or as a clue as to our, to our own case concerns Huizhang, who was living up in the north of China north of the Yangtze at a place called Mount Song 
And he heard of this meditation teacher down south called Huay Neng, and he decided that you know, this was sufficiently engaging and interesting that he'd go and, and meet this man. And so he sets out on what is actually a journey of about three or four hundred miles. Uh, and again, he, would, he, he didn't have easy jet. He had to walk, probably in sandals, a long way, begging en route, probably, staying at monasteries, until he finally gets to Nanwa Sur, which is uh, not that far from Guangzhou or Canton. And he goes into the monastery and he's taken to Hui Neng's uh, quarters and uh, Hui Neng then asks him, oh, where have you come from? And Hui Zhang says, I've come from Mount Song. And then Hui Neng says, but what is this thing? How did it get here? To which Hui Zhang was speechless. The text then rather, rather briefly says, Hui Zhang spent eight years in the monastery. <laughs> and at the end of this eight years, doing what we don't know, at the end of these eight years, um, Hui Zhang goes back to the teacher and says, I've understood something. And Hui Neng then says, repeating the original question, what is it then? And Hui Rang says, to say it is like something, this is the point. End of story. That is the koan. And I think we see illustrated in there what I was talking about last night as well. Hui Zhang is motivated by great faith, which leads him to take a 400-mile hike through China in quest of some teaching. He didn't just go out of some mild curiosity. One assumes... Again, we don't actually know, but one assumes that he was driven by some urgent uh, issue in his own life that he had to resolve. He was motivated to, uh, to go beyond his familiar comfort zone and not give in to those things that held him back. He was, this journey, this walk, was um, a kind of longing, or it embodied a certain longing to go beyond what was known and familiar but not deeply satisfying, to embark on a quest, a question, remember the two words are etymologically linked, a quest and question. And when he gets to the monastery, rather than being given some teaching that would make him feel comfortable, um, maybe give him lots of information, maybe be very philosophically fascinating, instead, Hui Nang pulls the 
carpet from beneath his feet and throws him back into the question of his own life. That's a good example of experiencing great doubt. His great faith throws him into a situation where he's encountering this great doubt, this what is this thing? How did it get here? He then spends eight years in the monastery. This we could take as an example of his courage, this great courage to to stay with this question, to pursue it, to uh, struggle with it. And then finally there is a resolution. But this resolution doesn't actually tell us very much. His answer, in inverted commas, uh, to the question, what is this, is to say, to say it is like something is not to the point. Now, that might, were, that might well have been for Hui Zhang the best way that he could articulate his insight his understanding, it won't do you or me any good at all to just repeat Hui Zhang's answer to that question. The challenge is to come up with your own response. This question, what is this, is not the sort of question that uh, for which there is a, a correct answer that's, that's, that's probably inscribed somewhere in a secret Chan manuscript. There is no right answer. There is only your authentic response. And that will take a form that is utterly specific to you not to Hui Zhang, not to me, not to Hui Neng. What is your response? And that response may not even be something that finds, uh, finds itself in a form of words. Again, since we draw upon a textual tradition, then these koans are usually vocal exchanges what is this thing? How did it get here? To say it is like something is not to the point. But in some ways I think that's, again, only touching the surface of what's actually happening. If this response to this question, or more importantly, this response, your response, to the question that life presents to you, if this is to have any real weight or purchase, then it's not just going to be expressed once in a form of words, as a clever, zeny answer, but will be expressed through the form that your life then takes. Arguably, 
the response to this kind of question is how you then choose to live. It need not have words attached to it at all. If we think of Agnes Martin that I mentioned last night, you know, she struggles for 20 years producing paintings that she ends up burning. And then finally she resolves uh, her struggle as an artist and finds her vision, what she calls her inspiration. And from that point on, her life then takes on another dimension, another, it follows another trajectory that takes her right through to the end of her days. Now maybe that example is a little bit too um, pared down and simplistic. Uh, here's a woman working as an artist, living largely alone in New Mexico. And that's not probably going to be the sort of experience that many of us in this room would share. But it's often these extreme cases, and I think Agnes Martin's life was extreme in many ways. It's these extreme cases that can actually be the most revealing. Hui Zhang going to see Hui Neng is in a sense an extreme case. It's an unusual for a young man to walk 400 miles to see a, a teacher. <coughs> But the intensity of these quests uh, in a way, in a, is, is able uh, to shine a very bright light on the process that is involved. And that's wherein their use resides. So although we are in a somewhat artificial situation here, we're in a meditation hall out in the countryside we're with a group of strangers we're following a schedule we're keeping silence it's a contrived situation but it's a bit like a sort of laboratory uh, we come to this place we benefit from the supports that a retreat offers in order likewise to shine as much light as we can in as undistracted a way as possible on the question of our life, of what it means to be this person that we are. And we have to put aside all that we have learned about Buddhism and Zen Buddhism, uh, any other kinds of religious or philosophical traditions too, Put all of that aside, at least for the duration of this practice period, and focus entirely upon the sense or the sensation of the question in your own body. What's, I think, very uh, important here is to recognize that this questioning is again not reducible just to a form of words. We use the, you know, the phrase, what is this? 
But there are actually, in classical Zen records, 1,700 koans that have been collected over the generations and enshrined as the canonical uh, body of instances that serve as case examples for our own case at hand. So it doesn't really matter which form of words you use. You might just as well say, why did Zhao Zhu say no? Another, again, a very famous koan, but one that for me is so culturally specific it's maybe a little less accessible than simply what is this but whether it's why did Zhao Zhu say no or what is this we're still again only at the surface these are forms of words they could serve perhaps as a kind of springboard Uh, that could launch us into another inquiry. And that other inquiry is not a different form of words, but it's actually letting go of the words altogether and experiencing what is called in Chan or Son the sensation of doubt. The sensation of doubt. Sometimes it's called the mass of doubt. Our teacher, uh, Kuzan Sunim, uh, used to compare it to the coagulating of milk. That as this questioning uh, becomes more focused, then it begins to have an effect on our bodies. It begins to coagulate, as he said from a liquid into a more solid state. It becomes something that we can palpably feel um, in our bones. In the commentary to the first koan in a collection called uh, The Gateless Gate, the author suggests that we question or we doubt with the marrow of our bones and with the pores of our skin. Now again, we don't want to take that literally, but we probably know what he means. This is a kind of questioning that is not an intellectual question that can have an intellectual answer, but it's a kind of questioning that gets under our skin. It's a kind of questioning that we start to feel reverberating in our flesh. Now this of course is not unfamiliar if we've been uh, used to doing vipassana or mindfulness practices or jhana practices where after a while when we settle into the practice it ceases to be just what you know a head game uh, something that goes on above our shoulders but through the posture through the discipline through the walking and through let's say scanning the body or through becoming aware of sensations around the nostrils or as they say in the jhana practices that 
your whole body and mind are suffused with a certain well-being, a certain rapture even. That the body gets drawn into this practice. This is utterly crucial. So here too we find the idea that this questioning evolves from being just a form of words and becomes um, a kind of vibrational uh, sense uh, within our body. It's as though we're asking the question with our whole body. In Japan they often say you should ask this question with your hara. Hara is the the low is the abdomen. In Chinese uh, medicine, they talk of the dandian, which is a point just below the navel. It's one of these sort of meridian points. And again, I don't think we need get too caught up in the technicalities of the of this language. The point is that we begin to feel this. Inquiry, this puzzlement, this confusion in the body itself. And at that point, we don't really need to keep asking, What is this? What is this? That could almost be irrelevant. What matters is to infuse your attention, your awareness, your consciousness uh, with this visceral sense of uncertainty of puzzlement of wonder again many different words come to mind some of them appealing like wonder and awe others may be a little bit scary like confusion bewilderment puzzlement we don't like feeling that we don't know something We don't like the sense of feeling stupid. We don't like the sense of being uh, bewildered. But strangely, we have less of a problem with experiencing wonder or mystery or awe. But actually, these are really all experiences within the same spectrum. All of them evoke more than just a mental, but an emotional or a bodily sense. So as we continue with this practice, start paying more and more attention to the way in which this questioning reverberates through your body. And if you begin to sense that, then just dwell on that. Just allow your attention to rest on that perplexity. (coughs) The way in which this meditation, but also you'll find this in pretty much any other form of meditation too, how this contemplation, how this inquiry um, begins to open up your sense of the world from a somewhat new angle or perspective. The world, and by the world, let's be more specific, the garden out here, the trees, the rooks, the, um, 
the building becomes, in a sense, less taken for granted, less, oh, that's just what I see out the window, and more something which, within itself, exhibits a kind of strangeness, almost, an oddness, something that surprises us, astonishes us. I feel that as the mind becomes more quiet, and however we might reach that quiet through meditation or listening to music or whatever it might be, um, as the mind quietens down, as we become less self-preoccupied with our worries and our stories and our plans, um, the world begins to reveal itself in another way. Um, people begin to reveal themselves in other ways. We might find it periodically just simply very odd to be here at all, to be surprised at our existence, to be surprised that this world has evolved over millions of years into what we're experiencing now. And I think all of us probably have moments of such uh, wonderment um, in our childhood as we grow up, when we meditate, when we're in love, when we're um, hiking in the mountains. What we're doing on this retreat is to create conditions whereby such a perspective, such a feeling, uh, is rendered more likely, more possible. And I think this is again worth bearing in mind. You can't just say to yourself, what is this? What is this? What is this? And hope through some miracle that suddenly it will evoke a deep sense of wonderment at the world. Um, this, there's nothing magic in this question. It's not like a mantra that's going to connect to some, to some cosmic energy or something. It's really just a device uh, to short-circuit the mind's usual habits. And as we probably notice when we meditate and we're not present and focused but just drifting around in our minds, that the mind's default network is basically this endless reiteration about my story, uh, my life, what's going on, what I've got to do, what I've done, who I am, what people think of me. This is the default network. And this default network, which presumably has served our biological survival or that of our ancestors, actually gets in the way of this questioning. The questioning is, is uh, a, 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 a tactic to trick the default network and to open up another uh, perspective on life 
that is not driven by the mind's habitual chatter. So what is this is compared uh, sometimes to a sword, the sword of Manjushri, the Bodhisattva of wisdom. It's a sword that cuts through thoughts. That's an image our teacher used to use a lot. It's a sword that cuts through thoughts. It cuts through the habits of the default neural network. So when the mind is chattering away, you say, what is this? And that brings you out of that reverie or daydream back to the question of the person who's having the daydream, who's having the wandering thought. There's nothing essentially right or wrong with these things. That's simply what is happening. We don't have to demonize them or feel frustrated by our chattering mind. But, oh, there it goes again. But what is this? And as we ask, what is this? We allow ourselves to come back to a more primary quality of attention, a kind of meta-attention, if you wish, uh, that sees the whole picture as it is present in this moment. And not just to see it with the eyes or the ears or the mind, but to feel it in a total way, body, mind, emotion, all somehow integrated, unified, in that moment. So this I would suggest we could explore in our practice today. Just to repeat, it's not important how many times you ask yourself this question. What matters is the quality of your questioning, the sincerity of your questioning, the courage of your questioning, and in particular, how that questioning resonates in your body in a way that's not verbal or conceptual at all. It's about, the question is perhaps at best, a form of words maybe the best form of words we can come up with to articulate the mystery of our own life or the mystery of life itself. Not just mine, but life, period. So, again, each of us has our own history with meditation. We may find different ways that we can support this practice maybe through concentration, maybe through mindfulness, maybe through loving-kindness. But try to integrate with our broader approach to meditation this quality of puzzlement that we begin to feel more and more in our own flesh. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.